Hello and welcome to the newest episode of the Minority One Podcast. Today, I will be playing a recording of a debate, which was held between myself and Dr. Wilfred Riley, and moderated by Alan Wolin on the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. This debate covers an essay called The Real History of Slavery, written by Dr. Thomas Sowell, a conservative economist. In the essay, Sowell argues that the real history of slavery has been distorted by what today might be called the woke left to push a certain narrative. The basic arguments of this essay will probably be apparent from listening to this debate, but Alan covers them in detail in his introduction and provides a link to the essay in the episode description. Essentially, I take the position that the essay is overall incorrect. My opponent takes the position that it is overall correct. I should note that my decision to focus on a few primary criticisms of the essay does not mean that I have no other criticisms of this essay. There are many other aspects of the essay that I consider incorrect, but due to time constraints, I chose to focus on what I consider to be the most serious, moral, factual, and intellectual errors, and which, taken together, are enough to make the essay incorrect overall. I should also explain why I agreed to this debate. I love history, and I love debating, but there is another crucial reason. I believe that there are right-wing historical claims being promoted that are fundamentally inaccurate and which can be obstacles to social progress. If the kind of historical claims that I critique were only held by 1% of the population, there might be no need to debate them. But when these beliefs are mainstream, then sitting in an echo chamber with other leftists is not helpful. Instead, we have to address these claims with facts and logic and hopefully persuade some undecided people that our claims are correct. That is what I have tried to do here. And I would like to thank Dr. Riley and Alan for agreeing to this debate. One other thing, due to the format of the debate, Dr. Riley spoke last, specifically giving the rejoinder. I have no objection to this, and I consider our debate format perfectly fair to both of us. However, I have decided to record a roughly five-minute response to his rejoinder, which will play after the recording of our debate. So please stick around for that. You won't want to miss it. Or at least, I hope you won't anyway. Right. So the theme of the conversation or the debate today, as I understand it, is whether Tom Sowell got it mostly right in his famous essay about slavery. And I expect an enjoyable back and forth. Neither of us is hostile. I'm sure there are many good targeted points my opponent might make about, for example, the hereditary nature of American slavery. But as an empirically minded social scientist, I think the answer to that question, you know, mostly right, a good piece is just clearly yes. So Sol's central point in the article, and he states this, and I believe paragraph two, is that when we think of slavery, we think of the oppression of black Americans, or at most about a primarily or entirely Western institution. We think roots and time on the cross. Uh, and in my experience, this claim rings very true. I mean, teaching at a solid, in fact, historically black institution, I've repeatedly heard students respond to claims like, you know, the, the USA or the West ended slavery with, well, who started slavery around the world? Whole categories of objects, as we've recently seen, nooses, whips, chains, are associated almost exclusively with black Americans by the majority of modern Americans. And in contrast to this viewpoint, Sol makes a whole series of points that I don't necessarily see easy rebuttals to. Um, the most obvious is that slavery existed literally around the world for almost all of history. 
And th this is uncontested. I mean, beginning in the West, slavery, including things like pedophilia, the underground fustarium, the abuse of female slave concubines, was universal in ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, as great a philosopher as Aristotle wrote a lengthy defense of the idea that some people were born to be slaves. The population of ancient Athens contained more slaves than free citizens. And obviously I focus on these societies because they laid some of the groundwork for ours, but much the same was true on every continent. The Muslim world over the years was perhaps particularly active in the slave trade. Over the centuries, far more Africans were shipped out of the African continent by the Arab slave trade than by the Atlantic slave trade, although honesty compels me to admit the latter had higher peaks in some years. Uh, the Arab states also carried on a thriving and almost forgotten slave trade in whites, uh, who were called European dogs, often used as galley slaves. This quote-unquote Barbary slave trade involved close to two million transactions over its history, many involving sales, obviously, to Moorish or black masters. And th this went on for a very long time. The Zanj Wars, again, almost forgotten, between Arabs and civilized Bantu peoples who had been taken as, as slaves were fought before 1000 AD. So Sol points this out. He also points out that it, it's not true that Western or American slavery was uniquely abusive. Um, Afrocentrist scholars, including some good friends of mine, will often try to present African war as a sort of friendly football-style contest. Uh, that's simply not true. Shaka Zulu's Mufakane wars killed roughly two million people. And it's particularly not true in the context of slavery. Uh, in reality, slaves taken by Arab slavers or by African ones like Tipu Tip were often castrated. There was a thriving market for eunuchs in the Middle East. The life expectancy of a galley slave was about two years. It's true fewer Africans entered truly hereditary bondage in the Arab world than in the West, but that's largely because so few lived to breed. Uh, slavery in the New World, where of course it also existed, was often even worse. Uh, Center-right academics like Marvin Harris have argued that warfare and slavery were often literally a source for meat, for mighty but protein-starved peoples like the Aztecs. Uh, whether or not Harris exaggerates a bit, and I think that's possible, there's no doubt that 30,000 or so captured warriors were sacrificed annually at the major Mexica festivals. Uh, Sol goes on to argue, he, he points all this out in detail, it's sometimes painful to read, and he goes on to argue that for all our flaws, it was largely the West that ended slavery. And this is also something that's empirically true. At the most basic level, there were few or no civilized African, Native American, Muslim, or South Asian societies, at least that I found researching for this contest, that had effective bans on slavery or slave trading prior to Western contact. With the exception of some trends in Chinese philosophy, my understanding is that slavery became a moral issue basically for the first time in the Enlightenment West, where it conflicted with the idea that all humans have scientifically or religiously based natural rights. Now, this did produce the worst form of racism as a direct response. The terrible question, basically, are blacks human? But it also produced William Lloyd Garrison and John Brown, names we remember today. And there, there is no doubt, this is political science now, that we saw a very steady progression of anti-slavery activism in the West from about 1750 forward. For example, the USA banning the slave trade in 1808, when it wasn't yet possible to ban the institution itself. The use of the British Navy to actively blockade the African coast at great cost. Uh, the reaction of most powerful nations of color to this was, in fact, resistance. Um, again, this is not extensively remembered today, but states like Dahomey, 
uh, powerful black kingdoms that made a substantial profit from the slave trade actually appeared before the queen and king of England to petition that the trade be allowed to continue. There were wars fought with Arab and Turkish descent states to allow the slave trade to continue and the West attempted to stop it. So I, I notice we're moving up on six minutes here. In one final sentence, I'm not sure I'd go so far as a black man as to thank all of the founding fathers for their attitudes on race or something like that. But Sol's main points, that slavery existed everywhere, that it was brutal everywhere, and that our culture stopped it, those ring true. Okay, thank you for that. So, Charles, you've got three minutes to uh, cross-examine uh, Professor Riley. Why don't you start? So, um, I would certainly not contest the notion that most Native American societies had forced labor prior to European arrival, but didn't Orlando Patterson find uh, in the same book where he debunked a lot of the ideas about slavery being a uniquely Western phenomena, didn't Patterson find that in what's now the United States, slavery was generally not hereditary with tri uh, among tribes outside of the West Coast? I think that that's a largely accurate conclusion. Now, when we look at one of the points that I make pretty often when I teach is that everyone that existed prior to perhaps the past hundred years would have struck us as a savage. Uh, the term used utterly non-racially here. Women didn't get the right to vote in the USA until 1920. So many native tribes that did break battle captives and use them as slaves would allow their children to become free. But there are, there are a couple of questions there. One would be, what is the percentage of Native American battle captives that survived long enough to have healthy children? I recently finished reading the book Scalp Dance about the practice of torture and high plains warfare, and I, I would assume that rate is extraordinarily low. I mean, when you look at the larger and more stable Native societies, like the Mexica, the Aztecs, I mean, the majority of slaves that were taken were taken in essentially a sacrificial role. Whether or not you, you believe the cannibalism narrative, I mean, those people essentially lived long enough to make it to the top of the temple and die. So there are different sorts of brutality here. I think that the hereditary nature of Western slavery is actually a point on your side, but I, I don't think that the practice of slavery in native communities was especially gentle. Uh, I'm not sure whether I'd rather be dead very early on or see my children continue my bondage. It's a, definitely a Sophie's choice. Uh, well, it seems like we actually have a lot of common ground here, but just to clarify sort of your position on this, because the, when I said the thing about the United States, I was very careful to specifically refer to societies north of the Mexican border, because societies south of the border, I think, tended to have sort of more hierarchy and more, you know, systems of slavery. But you'd agree that uh, the, the issue of a human sacrifice, which obviously would prevent many slaves from... Uh, passing that condition on to their children, you'd agree that that is not, was not generally a, a common practice among most tribes uh, north of the Mexican border. You know, I mean, I've heard the Pawnee did it, but, but you'd agree that most tribes didn't do that regularly enough to account for the deaths of most of the battle captives. Sure. And I, I think that we're talking about different forms of brutality, like the sure. more quote unquote advanced a society is a term I actually have some issues with. The less initially brutal it is likely to be, and again, reading the descriptions of native treatment of initial captives is pretty sobering, um, but the more evil in long-term fashion it may be. So yes, among certain North American native tribes, if you lived long enough to have children, they were probably free, but that's a, that's a hell of a qualifier. Okay, so we've got three minutes there. Now, uh, Professor Boyd, why don't you take seven minutes to present your case. Okay, three, two, one. 
The number of unsupportable claims that Dr. Soule makes about slavery are enough to render his overall essay false. Firstly, Soule states that in Western society, quote, the principal impetus for the abolition of slavery came first from very conservative religious activists, people who would today be called the religious right. Among white abolitionists, Northeastern Unitarians, Quakers, con and Congregationalists were very overrepresented, and these were then and are now socially and theologically liberal faith traditions. So Sowell's first point about the religious right is about sort of abolitionists being an analog for them is fundamentally false. Many black abolitionists were traditional evangelicals, but many others, such as Sojourner Truth, Francis Harper, Peter Smith, and eventually Frederick Douglass, were socially and theologically liberal and supported causes such as feminism. In Britain, Quakers were also overrepresented among abolitionists. Now, one of the most prominent examples, Elizabeth Hayrick, championed other liberal causes, such as ending the death penalty, and clashed with more moderate evangelical anti-slavery activists due to supporting both immediate emancipation and due to violating sort of the traditional gender norms of the era. Secondly, Sowell fails to give proper credit to black people for doing much of the work to achieve abolition within the West, yet William Lloyd Garrison was persuaded to support immediate emancipation largely by black abolitionists. In 1834, three quarters of his subscribers were black. White abolitionists and anti-slavery politicians were vital in achieving emancipation, but they did so along with black people. Black revolutionaries in Haiti banned slavery decades before the British outlawed it. A massive 1831 slave rebellion in Jamaica helped frighten some of the more conservative British politicians into backing emancipation to avoid another larger rebellion. Had black people not taken part in fighting for their own emancipation, how much longer would slavery have been legal in Western nations? Third, Sowell criticizes white abolitionists for being too dogmatic, uncompromising, and naive by demanding immediate emancipation. This is the kind of moral relativism that Sowell usually dislikes, because if slavery is inherently wrong, then owning slaves or allowing slavery is always wrong, requiring one to support immediate universal emancipation. Abolitionist efforts to come up with practical plans for emancipation, uh, immediate emancipation, I should say, were generally rejected. When some abolitionists proposed that, as a stepping stone after immediate emancipation, but before integration into the broader free society, ex-slaves could uh, have a system of apprenticeship, this was still rejected as too radical. When abolitionists like Wendell Phillips proposed reparations to lift ex-slaves out of poverty, this was rejected also. Abolitionists were not to blame for the racism, callousness, and greed of 19th century America, especially when so many tried hard to make the North more welcoming to black people by fighting, by fighting segregation there. Fourth, Soul misunderstands the views and actions of the Founding Fathers on slavery. The Constitution offered ironclad federal protection for slavery, requiring that runaway slaves be returned to owners. Madison bragged that this clause gave slaveholders new protection and that the Constitution would prevent the federal government from ever banning slavery. Jefferson's opposition to the slave trade is not evidence of his anti-slavery views, which he did not have, because many Virginia slaveholders opposed the African slave trade because they felt that importing more slaves from Africa would increase the supply and therefore lower the market value of their slaves. When one of Jefferson's slaves, James Hubbard, ran away and was recaptured, Jefferson ordered them whipped. Sowell argues that Jefferson's debts prevented him from freeing most of his slaves, but these debts were caused largely by well-documented, very extravagant spending 
that could easily have been curtailed had emancipation been a priority. Washington is stated to have secretly freed slaves in Philadelphia. In fact, Washington rotated slaves in and out of Pennsylvania to get around a state law which was supposed to free slaves who spent more than six months there. There is no need to judge Washington by the standards of 2021, just by the standards of the 1780 Pennsylvania law he broke to keep his slaves. Fifth, Sol dismisses slavery as the root cause of higher rates of non-nuclear families among black people than white people, partly by stating that black out-of-wedlock birth rates have gone up since the 1960s. But this fails to distinguish between root causes and exacerbating factors. Root causes explain why aggregate racial, aggregate racial disparities in non-nuclear homes between black and white people exist in the first place. That's what a root cause is. Exacerbating factors explain why the percentage of black children in non-nuclear homes has gone up in the past 50 years. In 1880, black children were, were roughly two to three times more likely to live away from one or both parents than white children. That's two to three times more likely. Even if welfare is the sole reason that black non-nuclear household rates have gone up since 1965, it cannot be the root cause for why more black children than white children live in non-nuclear homes, given that that disparity existed long before federal welfare programs. Enslaved children were far likelier than white children at the time to live with one or no parent. Historian Stephen Mintz estimates that depending upon the criteria that you use, anywhere from 35 to a full 50 percent of enslaved children had one or both parents absent. This is because owners could separate families any time and there was no penalty for sexual abuse. Sixth, Sol claims that descendants of slaves today are better off because of slavery. Now, even if one accepts the false, I would, I would dare to say absurd claim that modern black people are better off due to their ancestors being kidnapped and forcibly brought here, even if you accept that false claim, it is still obviously true that they would be much better off today had they been freed upon arriving in America. Every day that slavery went on after Africans were brought here created greater problems for their descendants. Thus, the question is not, are African Americans better off today due to slavery than they would be in Africa? But rather, the question is, would African Americans be better off now if they had ended up in America, but not been enslaved? Not been enslaved. Conservatives bring up successful African immigrants to claim black people have equal opportunities today. Now, you cannot simultaneously claim this, but also claim that the only alternative to slavery was living in Africa perpetually. The fact that outlawing slavery in America made slave descendants, slaves' descendants better off and not worse off showcases the need to distinguish between the fact that black people ended up here, the way in which they ended up here, and what happened for generations after they ended up here. In sum, Sol's essay includes numerous oversimplifications and flawed arguments. Okay, well, thank you for that. So, Professor Riley, would you like three minutes to cross-examine Professor Boyd? Sure. Yeah, my, my first question, I mean, a lot of this gets into the detailed and convoluted nature of the academic literature in both history and poli-sci. I mean, what, what did Jefferson and Washington really think about slavery? It's a fascinating question. I guess my first broad question would be, do you disagree with most of the core themes of this essay as uh, I believe Dr. Souls identified them, that slavery was universal, you know, we certainly were no princes here, but was extremely brutal around the world and was largely ended by the West, in particular Britain, but certainly also the USA. I mean, would, would you take issue with any of that? Well, first of all, I would point out that a lot of what Dr. Soule says about the history of slavery 
in non-Western nations are things that have been written about pretty extensively by uh, academics. Many of them uh, on the left, for example, he quotes David Brian Davis about African slavery. David Brian Davis was a self-described leftish Democrat, very prestigious historian, got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama before he died. Um, but the, I think the broader issue, so he's saying a lot of stuff that, uh, like most of the accurate stuff in there, are things that you can already find out about elsewhere in which the the fact that they are not as well known is largely due to all too much of the public not knowing a lot about American history, let alone world history. Now, I think that the the, the reason that I focus on what may seem like minutia is that, first of all, these, these, these problems, when you take them together, are fairly large. And second of all, I think that they speak to an overarching problem with the essay, which is that, with all due respect to Soul, because I do have a lot of respect for Dr. Soul, but a lot the overall thrust of the essay does involve essentially rational, rationalizing, sort of trying to explain away, steel-manning the sort of unwillingness of most white people in the West to support immediate emancipation, or at least in America, prior to the Civil War, and the uh, unwillingness of many white Americans of that era to even free their own slaves or take any kind of anti-slavery actions. Now, with regards to the West, this is actually one of my, I touched on this earlier, but this is actually one of my main criticisms with the essay. There is very little attention played to Haiti here. Even though Haiti banned slavery, if we're being generous, about 30 years before Britain did. And you could say that Haiti didn't have much, and it's interesting because he references the bloodbath that followed the emancipation of slaves in Haiti, but what he doesn't mention is that the bloodbath happened because the French wouldn't free them. You know, they, they, they caused, a, the French caused a bloodbath by not freeing the slaves. Now, the other thing with Haiti is you could say it didn't have a big global impact. The problem is that Haiti was a major inspiration to abolitionists worldwide. Uh, Wendell Phillips, who I quoted earlier, actually gave a speech about uh, L'Overture, you know, the uh, Haitian revolutionary leader, to refute the idea of white supremacy. Yeah, I mean, well, well said, but I mean, I, I think my basic point comes back to Sol's goal here was writing a, a lengthy public intellectual essay that would put a lot of this this information into the public eye, again, if you prefer. And I, I think just read those major parts. I mean, slavery existed everywhere. Slavery is a brutal process. And the West largely ended the practice of slavery. I, I think those those survive. Uh, I noticed we have a new timer. Are we are we starting a new session here? Oh, okay. I was uh, I thought you were lapsing into your affirmative rebuttal, so I oh, didn't okay. realize you were still in the cross examination. Why don't I, I can, time, time why don't, yeah, you take four minutes to give your affirmative rebuttal. Just just standard form response to his, his points. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think that. So I don't want to get repetitious here, but I think my core point with this essay is that it, according to the author, has a set of core themes. One of those is, of course, this has been said before by great men and women of the right and left, but slavery existed around the world. Saul wanted to emphasize that in precise detail and did so. Two, slavery was a brutal praxis wherever it existed. I mean, I, I don't really think that things like galley slavery are generally discussed in great detail on the Western left. And third, the West ended slavery. And I think that those core points of the essay, although my opponent's critiques are largely accurate, soul rights from the right. Um, but I mean, and it, the goal of an academic conversation like this one is to get to the truth. Of course, you can say you know, soul comes from the right, Tim Weiss from the left, so on down the line. But I think those, those three core points survive extraordinarily well. Slavery was a worldwide institution, equally brutal in most places, ended by the Western world. The Haiti point, I mean, one obvious response is that it wasn't Haiti blockading the African coast or the Tripoli ports. I mean, 
the Haitian Revolution was symbolic in that it showed that a slave order could be destroyed, but it was countries like Britain, later France, the USA that actually did so. And to some extent, you have to give this same analysis to the argument that it was black abolitionists that, that truly overturned slavery in the USA. I mean, if, if we're being realistic about this, black people couldn't vote until 1865. It was through the actions of white allies of good intent that, that really all of this happened. So to me, the core point survived. Two additional uh, comments relevant to uh, what I think were my, my opponent's strongest points. One, as read the root causes argument of uh, black family collapse, I, I think it's important to look at the actual figures here, the raw data. It, it is definitely true that there has been a gap, usually about two to one, between black illegitimacy, if you prefer, rates and white, you know, illegitimacy out of wedlock birth rates. The issue, though, is the nearly 1,000% increase that occurred at the start of the modern welfare system. So as Walter Williams, another great right-leaning African-American economist, has pointed out, the black out of wedlock birth rate in 1938 was maybe 10%. As I recall, he gives that as a high-end estimate. The white rate was 4%, although either you or Dr. Boyd might correct me. So... There's a gap there, but the rates right now are 72% and 40%. So the initial gap, which is four percentage points, five percentage points, certainly may be due to past racism. But the question on the minds of most center-right quants would be, why have we seen this massive increase when this particular social practice changed or this new set of institutions arrived? Now, uh, another point in terms of the idea that reparations may be owed, um, the sort of dismissal of Sol's claim that black people are better off in America than they would be in Africa, that's to some extent just empirically accurate. As a black man, I find it a bit callous, but I mean, I recently for a paper looked at the GDPs of major African states. And even if you're talking about PPP, purchasing power parity, GDP for say Ghana, that's perhaps $10,000. The black American household income in the USA is $45,000. We're ahead of a number of white groups. So the only possible scenario where the old racial wars weren't an advantage to people that are in eight genera five generations removed from slavery is this sort of hypothetical where black people came to America in 1800 but weren't slaves or opposed to the white-dominated country. And that is, that is simply not realistic due to U.S. immigration policy, if nothing else. The black immigrants began to arrive in the 1930s and 40s and, of course, did well. But it, it, the Eidos black community would not be here if it weren't for conflict in the past. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, Professor Boyd, you have six minutes for your rebuttal. All right, just uh, if you'll hold on one second, I'm just going to... Uh get um, this, I'm just going to get my um, notes to get back together here. All right, so the first point that I would sort of like to respond to is that the issue, the fact that Sowell's essay is generally accurate because of sort of the broader themes of, you know, kind of the West ending slavery or the idea that slavery was a global phenomenon. In addition to the fact that things such as the West endings, or sorry, not the West ending slavery, I'll get back to that in a minute, but the, the existence of slavery as a global phenomena, not only has that been written about pretty extensively by scholars, but I would argue that it's fairly well baked into the culture at this point. You know, I think in pop culture, we sort of know this, like, um, for example, Spartacus was such an iconic movie that it's been remade 
on a number of occasions. You know, it was a miniseries or, or something a while back. I think now they have it as sort of like a NC-17 sort of Game of Thrones for historians type show, which sort of reflects the fact that people know that slavery largely existed in the Roman world. Uh, to look at the example of sort of uh, African slavery. Um, in the, I can't speak to the novel roots. I have not read the novel. But the TV miniseries, both the 70s version and the uh, 2016 remake, both depict African traders as selling other Africans into slavery. And this actually ties in with the fact, so I went to the most liberal high school probably in the city of Atlanta, and we, we learned in our freshman year history textbook that African leaders and traders sold other Africans into slavery. So, so I, would, I would say that it's not as suppressed as Dr. Soul claims that it is. Now, with regards to the slavery being a global phenomena and the West ending slavery, we've already discussed, and I could get into this with other societies, but just for the sake of brevity, I will say that, you know, as we've discussed with a lot of Native American tribes, the hereditary nature of slavery is something that hasn't been common to all societies. And not only has it not been common to all societies, but there are actually instances in which it's gotten introduced into not sort of non-white societies by white arrivals. Uh, so, for example, with regards to Native Americans, uh, a lot of uh, the tribes in the Southeast were actually uh, sort of introduced to slave trading by, uh, sorry, not slave trading, but to a hereditary perpetual black chattel slavery by white people as when they were trying to sort of assimilate into the white culture. And some of the tribes that wouldn't assimilate and wouldn't sort of knuckle under to the United States some of these uh, communities, you know, certain seminal communities that refused to that refused to knuckle under this, would actually provide shelter to runaway slaves, and this is one of the reasons that the U.S. government, you know, under people like you know, uh, sort of in the Madison Monroe era, you know, people like Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, fought the Seminoles so aggressively. Uh, and with regard to Haiti being symbolic, I will say that this, uh, the, you know, not only was the symbolism rather important because it inspired generations of abolitionists, but it also Haiti's relative weakness and their inability to uh, block blockade the, the coast of West Africa to stop the slave trade is partly because countries like France, you know, so, the, you know, George Washington tried to stop, tried to suppress the slave rebellion, you know, help the French suppress it. He couldn't do that. France basically tried to do everything it could to impoverish Haiti, basically because the French government couldn't forgive Haiti for having essentially humiliated the French and driven the slaveholders out. Now, with regards to, I want to talk here now, with the time that I have left, about the sort of uh, issue of overall rates versus gaps, and the issue of black people being better off due to slavery. So the problem, there are two issues with saying that the overall number of black out-of-wedlock births and non-nuclear homes is more important than racial disparities. And I will, I will point out here that the non-nuclear home versus out-of-wedlock birth rates is actually a very important distinction because a couple could get married six months after their baby is born, and a couple could get married, but if the father deserts when the kid is five, it, it's still going to have a pretty negative impact on the kid's life. So if you look at the numbers, uh, we've already talked about the numbers under slavery, and I've talked about the ratios post-slavery, but to talk about the numbers uh, after slavery, um, the it's pretty consistently true that up, th up to 1960, about 35% of black children by the age of 14 had one or both parents absent. Uh, and, so, and it's also worth noting that the black out of wedlock, black out of wedlock birth rate and non-nuclear household rates already being so much higher is part of why the rate is so high today. Because 
if the black out of wedlock birth rate had been the same as the white rate pre-1965, it would be under 10% today, If it, assuming that it had grown at the same rate, because um, the black out of wedlock birth rate, the statistic I usually hear is that it's about tripled since the 1960s. But if it had been the same as the uh, white out of wedlock birth rate prior to 1960, then or prior to the 1970s, then if it had tripled, it would have been under 10%. Now, the argument about whites not having offered Africans free passage to America, the, the argument that that can't be used to say that black people are better off from slavery because it's unrealistic, fundamentally fails because the argument about black people being left in Africa also requires us to assume that white people would have done something that they were not willing to do in, in real history, which is to say it would have required that they not engage in the African slave trade. So you can't say it's, you can't say it's unrealistic to imagine an alternate scenario in one case, but unreal, but realistic to imagine it in the other. I, I think my take throughout the, the conversation or the debate has been uh, pretty consistent. I, I think my opponent's making some intelligent, specific points. I think the, the thrust of the essay survives pretty well because there are responses to those points. I mean, sort of for the last kind of three minutes here, taking these block by block. I mean, when the claim is made, that most non-academic Americans are aware of the global history of slavery. That may be true in some very broad sense, i.e. they're aware that um, there were African traders. Uh, I don't think that more than 2% of non-academic Americans, and I am guessing here, but could name the Barbary slave trade, for example, which enslaved 2,000 primarily European individuals. Uh, I don't think that there are a very large number of non-academic Americans who know who Tipu Tip is. I mean, I think that there's a very specific directed way in which this is generally taught. Uh, the most recent textbook I looked at that discussed the Aztecs didn't mention human sacrifice. And that probably has something to do with that sort of 90 to 10 political slant in academia. And I think what Sol's doing is at an upper end public intellectual level pointing this out. Uh, and again, moving into... The, the hereditary or brutal nature of U.S. slavery, good, good point, but there's obviously a response. The examples of slavery in other developed societies, as opposed to North American, Native American tribes, were very much along the same model. I mean, if you look at Zan slavery in the Muslim world, this, this wasn't something that lasted for one generation after which descendants then moved into society. And again, I don't think most Americans could name the Zan wars. I don't think one person in 10 could. So... You know, our, our equal rivals in, you know, the powerful Muslim nations gave the world most of its names for slaves. I mean, the Arabic term for black person, Abid, means slave. Um, the term for a South Central European, Slav or Slava, means slave. This was a practice. Those are the two words used globally for slave. I mean, this was a practice that went on for a very long time in a hereditary fashion. Most of the, and I'll use quotes here, civilized world. Um in terms of some of the, the technical quantitative points about the black out of wedlock birth rate, you know, I think that there's no doubt whatsoever that that transition from 9% to 70% is to some extent more significant than that difference between 9% and 4%. I, I will say also, I don't understand the argument that if the black out of wedlock birth rate had increased at the same rate as the white out of wedlock birth rate, it would be... 10%. I mean, it would be what the white out of wedlock birth rate is, which is, I believe, 37.4%. Last I looked at governmental data that includes Caucasian Hispanics. 
We've seen this increase in the white community as well. If you, if you view this as a problem, it's not specifically a black problem. And I, I do view this as a problem. So finally, the, the most controversial claim Soul makes, this is why we've been discussing it, maybe this argument that black people are better off in America because of slavery. To me, there's a difference between positing, you know, a one-step hypothetical, i.e. had white and black nations not clashed in the past and had black people not come to America, would black people be better off in Africa on the one hand and on the other, assuming a hypothetical where black people are brought here, never enslaved and trained to succeed. I think the second is very, very different. So okay. Thank you. Time is up. So thank you both for a very uh, excellent debate. I have a, a couple of questions for you um, before we end the call. Um, I'm a layman. I'm not a historian. I'm not a political scientist. You know, I, I read uh, mostly as an intellectual hobby. And my, my, my major question for you, and I think a lot of our listeners will have this question as well after reading Sowell's essay and after listening to this debate is, should I feel guilt and embarrassment about my country's slave trading owning past? Or should I feel pride and self-respect that my country ended the international practice of slavery? Or there's a third possibility. Am I entitled to feel neither shame nor pride in anything that happened before I was even born. And I think this is the fundamental question about this issue of slavery. And I'd like to hear how each of you answers this question. Thank you. And I'll def I definitely want to unpack that. What I do want to kind of say here um, with regards to uh, sort of guilt versus pride versus neither, I don't think that anybody should feel guilt about something that they didn't do. However, I do think that it's perfectly appropriate to feel a sense of disgust at what the United States did on slavery. Now, we can take pride in the people, you know, the abolitionists, for example, although Sowell generally criticizes them. I mean, he's easier on Robert E. Lee than he is on William Lloyd Garrison, but we can take pride in abolitionists uh, who fought slavery. And we can take pride in you know, even politicians like Abe Lincoln, who fought slavery. And I think we can take some pride in the, uh, in the United States doing things to promote emancipation abroad, although we also then have to feel a sense of shame in, for example, invading Haiti in the 1910s and uh, instituting forced labor programs that left thousands of people dead. But um, I would say that in general, the appropriate response is not shame, but I do think there needs to be a sense of uh, disgust, an acknowledgement of the wrongdoing, and also an acknowledgement of sort of the good things that some American individuals or, or many American individuals did to fight slavery here and abroad. Let's say you, Professor Riley. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the answer is complex. First of all, I don't feel anything whatsoever uh, morally related to the actions of people who died dozens if not hundreds of years before I was born. But I, I think from a from a moral standpoint, I think that it is appropriate to feel a mix of emotions. I mean, obviously, most people, when they read about life on a slave plantation in, say, Georgia in the 1830s, 
are going to be disgusted and they're going to think that happened in this country. That's awful. At the same time, I think most people, when they read about the Union breaking the Confederacy, or again, the USA and Britain ending the global slave trade, are going to think, wow, that's magnificent. And both are appropriate. Just as the study of World War II would include an understanding of the incredible bravery of the troops, but also the great depravity that humans are capable of. I think that a third essential element here, however, is context. And that's why I do view the soul essay as so useful. The needed context here is that, again, virtually every nation in the world, Britain, France, Haiti until emancipation, the Dominican Republic to some extent afterward by the mulatto planters, certainly the great Muslim societies, the many stable African societies like Benin, all of these entities practiced slavery. So it's absolutely appropriate to look back at this era and think all of these people were savages in our terms, doing things like not letting women participate in political practice and enslaving other people that we consider the nadir of behavior today. Um, I condemn all of them, but I do not condemn us uniquely. A, a bit rambly there, but I, I think that is why it's important to understand that these practices were global. Very often in the USA Today, and I'm in modern, I believe we both are, but I'm in modern sort of left-leaning, decently ranked academia, and we, we very, very often focus on the sins of the USA and sometimes Britain almost exclusively. And it, it's worth swinging a bit around the globe and asking, well, what were our rivals in China? or uh, Persia, uh, Turkey, you know, what, what, as those countries were known at the time, but what were they doing at the same time? And that answer adds some clarity. So perhaps a bit of pride, perhaps a bit of shame, I, I think more importantly than either an understanding of the reality of the world at that time, which is fairly disturbing to many modern Americans, just as our factory farming and probably things like OnlyFans would be to those people. Okay, my last question for you both before we end this conversation is, you know, if, if the subject of reparations weren't somewhat on the popular mind, this whole slavery discussion would be a purely sort of academic, intellectual exercise. But given that people are talking about reparations for slavery, uh, where do each of you, you know, if, if, in your elevator pitch, one minute uh, explanation, where do each of you, you know, come out on the subject of reparations for slavery? Professor Boyd. Okay, so in the so I, we have to distinguish here between sort of um, what my view morally and philosophically is versus what my view is from sort of a practical standpoint. So on the one hand, I think morally and philosophically, obviously there should be reparations to descendants of slaves uh, for reasons that I've discussed. I do believe that slavery left African Americans today much worse off than they would have been had they not been enslaved. And I do think the distinction about the fact that they came to the United States, uh, how how they were brought here and what happened after they were brought here, all of these things, you have to distinguish between those three things. And when you look at especially uh, how being enslaved after they were brought here versus being set free on arrival affected African-Americans, and it's very clear there's very demonstrable harm that's still being felt today. And I certainly feel that the U.S. government as an institution does owe the descendants of slaves pretty hefty compensation for that. Now, from a practical standpoint, there are a lot of issues with trying to implement it, such as the difficulty of tracing slave ancestry, uh, the question of whether, okay, does this mean other groups that have been wronged and, and possibly denied material gains in certain ways, uh, for example, Native Americans, um, 
gay people who have been historically subjected to uh, discriminatory tax tax codes, things like that. It begs the question of do all of these groups uh, then should they get reparations also? And then you also run into the, the simple fact of the matter, which is that reparations are so unpopular compared to a lot of other reforms I support, like uh, ending racial profiling and even things like um, defending affirmative action. You know, there are a lot of people that are pro-affirmative action, anti-reparations that I do worry about sort of the political fallout from Democrats pushing that. You know, I, I do suspect, you know, that in uh, 2019, that when Democrats were holding hearings on reparations, that it was largely because, while I do believe that they cared about African-Americans and cared about African-Americans' uh, rights and, and everything like that, I do think that they held those hearings partly because they knew Republicans controlled the Senate and the executive branch and that the bill wouldn't pass. I th you know, So I, I think that the sheer unpopularity of reparations along with the difficulty in implementing it makes me conflicted, but certainly from a moral and philosophical standpoint, I believe reparations are absolutely appropriate for former for uh, descendants of former slaves, and I uh, certainly, if somebody could give me sort of a concrete policy plan for it that I think is feasible, then it would be something that I would wholeheartedly endorse. Professor Riley. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think that the first point that we're still debating here is the establishment of a harm. So, I mean, bluntly, I don't think there was there would be any chance in, say, 1790 of black warriors from rival societies having been brought to the USA and then set free. I mean, we, we've gone back and forth. And I think both made points here, but I, I don't think that would be something on the table. So you first have to show that black people, black people alive today are, in fact, worse off than we would have been were it not for, say, the slave trade through 1808. And I think comparing relative incomes, that's actually fairly difficult to do. But that said, we've already we've already hashed over this ground. You might be surprised to hear that I actually don't have a strong moral, if you will, that's not a word I use a lot in politics, objection to reparations. Um, we've made reparatory payments many times in the past, Japanese, Americans, so on. Um, I think that there are two problems here, one of which my opponent outlined quite well, that we're going to have to deal with if this ever becomes an idea, though. The first is that you can't have reparations and affirmative action, right? So we've already set up a formal, if a bit half-assed, structure of compensating minorities very specifically for past harms. Um, I mean, I have a faculty and until recently an executive role at a state-level university. I mean, it is no secret that there is going to be a massive advantage, sometimes on the order of 100 or more points on the test, if you're applying to most academic institutions, the equivalent of many Fortune 500 jobs, etc., government contracts, minority set-asides as a person of color. So will that system be done away with in exchange for some kind of reparations program? And is the reparations program likely to work better? There's absolutely no chance of the average working class white American voting for or voting for candidates who vote for reparations followed by a 50-year continuation of affirmative action. So that that's one of those practical, pragmatic considerations. The second when I debate this on campuses, I always say there are three issues of reparations. Who gets, which is fairly easy to figure out. I do think there are ways to trace Ados ancestry. Who gives, which is a real issue. I mean, do Hispanic Americans pay reparations to blacks? And most importantly, who's next? So there's a 0% chance that if a reparations policy is implemented in any effective manner, that Irishmen, Native American Indians, 
gay Americans, we now know this is a largely hereditary condition, like a condition, state of being, you know, women who couldn't vote until the 20s, there's no chance that these people, powerful organized groups like NOW and AIM, don't come forward and make similar demands. And you, you find, like, I'm part black, part native, and part Irish. So I'm, I'm curious about what sort of payments I'd get, what sort of payments I'd make. I'm doing pretty well in terms of tax bracket. Only when we work those two issues out to cut off the kind of thread of dialogue here, will a reparation deal be possible? We'll see if that happens. We'll see if both parties can come to the table neutrally and talk like adults and make that happen. I wouldn't bet $5 on it. Thank you both very much for a very, very spirited debate. I've learned a ton and I hope our listeners have as well. And uh, I welcome you both back on the show uh, at some time in the near future. Thank you both. That concludes the portion of our debate that aired on the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Now what I'm going to do is offer my response to Dr. Riley's rejoinder. I would argue that much of what Dr. Soule and Dr. Riley attribute to a kind of left-wing campaign to castigate the U.S. and the West generally is better attributed to an overall lack of public knowledge about history, especially world history. When I teach world history pre-1500, I devote a lecture to the Arabic slave trade, and I specifically cover the Zand Rebellion of Bantu slaves against Arabic masters. I do not doubt that many Americans are unaware of the Arabic slave trade, and I would venture to say that very few are aware of the enslavement and rebellion of the Zanj people. I also doubt that many people are aware that, for example, in the late 1700s, European colonizers had enslaved so many people in South Africa that slaves made up the majority of the population. This illustrates that while it is easy to find examples of slavery in non-white societies that are mostly forgotten today, one can also find, easily, neglected examples of slavery in white societies globally. As regards the textbook, I cannot deny that there are individual textbooks that gloss over brutality by societies such as the Aztecs, possibly to try to make white people or the West look worse. But, w but when Eric Foner, one of the most prominent left-wing historians, publishes a widely used textbook which specifically acknowledges African involvement in the slave trade, one has to wonder exactly how prevalent this kind of glossing over really is. I was not arguing that if the black out-of-wedlock birth rate had been the same as the white rate pre-1970 and grown at the same rate as the white rate, it would be under 10% today. Rather, I was saying that if the rates had been the same pre-1970 or so, and the black rate had grown at the same rate that the black rate has grown in real life, i.e. roughly tripled, then it would be under 10% today. In other words, the reason that the black out-of-wedlock birth rate today is over 70%, and the white rate significantly lower, despite the black rate tripling and the white rate increasing more than sevenfold, is precisely because the black out-of-wedlock birth rate was already so much higher. This is why the disparities are important to look at as well as overall rates. And as we have discussed, the percentage of black children between the end of slavery and the 1960s who had absentee parents shows that simply looking at out-of-wedlock birth rates do not tell anything close to the full story of how slavery impacted black families. Setting aside questions of what modern living conditions in Africa might look like today without the Atlantic slave trade, I would like to return to my central criticism of claims by figures such as Dr. Soule 
that black people are better off today from slavery. Dr. Riley posits that imagining a scenario where black people are never brought to America as slaves only requires a one-step hypothetical, while imagining a scenario where they end up in America but are not enslaved requires changing multiple aspects of history, and that it is therefore reasonable to imagine the former but not the latter. There are three problems here. One, it is not clear why it is possible to imagine one aspect of history being changed, but not multiple aspects changing, when they basically all come down to humans making different decisions, not to immutable laws of nature, like gravity. Two, imagining a scenario where black people are left in Africa doesn't just involve one minor point of divergence, rather it essentially involves the African slave trade never happening, which would require massively different decisions by many different people, or a massively different balance of power globally. So it is still not clear why one can imagine that scenario to argue for black people being better off due to slavery, yet not imagine a scenario where black people end up in America but aren't enslaved after getting here. Third, we don't have to imagine black people coming here without being enslaved, because we see it with African immigrants today, as conservatives bring up to deny systemic racism. It should be noted that black people are the only group not indigenous to this country, for whom conservatives frequently do not distinguish between the fact that they ended up here and the oppression that followed when it comes to discussing whether they are better off today from that oppression. Almost nobody uses the argument that Japanese Americans are better off here than in Japan to try to claim that Japanese Americans today benefited from parents or grandparents being interned. The fact that black people are the only group whose ancestors were brought here by and large against their will, does not mean that they alone can be said to have benefited from their ancestors' oppression. Quite the opposite. In 1909, white liberal Republican judge Wendell Phillips Stafford illustrated quite well how forcibly bringing, quote-unquote, the black race here gave America a responsibility to them and made the treatment that followed an even worse violation of this responsibility rather than being somehow good for slaves' descendants. To quote Judge Stafford, We brought it here by theft and force. We owed it liberty, and we gave it a chain.